Welcome to the Pantsuit Nation podcast. Pantsuit Nation is an online community of 3.8 million people who have come together to resist the current administration through activism, advocacy, and the power of personal narrative. I'm Courtney Tunis, one of the leaders of Pantsuit Nation, and usually I am joined by Libby Chamberlain, my fearless podcaster partner in crime. Um, However, she is on vacation this week, and so I'm flying solo. But I am excited to bring an interview that the two of us did with Neera Tandon, um, the president and CEO of the Center for American Progress, to you this week. Um, We talked to her a couple of weeks ago. And so let's listen into um, what that interview brought us. So we are so thrilled today to be joined by Neera Tandon, who is the president and CEO of the Center for American Progress and the Center for American Progress Action Fund, where she focuses on how both organizations can fulfill their missions to expand opportunity for all Americans. Neera has also served in both the Obama and Clinton administrations, as well as on presidential campaigns. She's appeared on Meet the Press, Face the Nation, NewsHour with Jim Lehrer, uh, HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher, among other shows, and she was named to Elle Magazine's Women in Washington Power List and Political Magazine's Political 50, an annual list of the top thinkers, doers, and visionaries in American politics. She's been included in National Journal's Washington's Most Influential Women, Washingtonian Magazine's uh, Most Powerful Women in Washington. I just like reading all of these because it's so fantastic. (laughs) Uh, And Fortune Magazine's Most Powerful Women in Politics. Uh, So basically, uh, Neera Tandon's business card just says Powerful Women in Politics, (laughs) which uh, we couldn't agree with you uh, more on that. So welcome, Neera. Thank you so much for joining us on the Pantsy Nation podcast. I love it. And I just want to say I'm really thrilled to be with you and I love Pantsuit Nation and just I'm, I'm like a, just fanning over here. So. <laughs> Thank you. So are we. So the feeling yeah. is mutual. Um, so for any of our listeners that aren't familiar with the Center for American Progress or CAP as it's referred to often and as we will talk about it, can you tell us a bit about your work and how it's evolved since the organi- organization's inception about a decade ago? Sure. In fact, this year is our 15th anniversary, oh, okay. and we just we're we've just been thinking through, um, you know, our impact and what our organization really started with. And it's actually happened. We got started at a very similar time, which is we started during the Bush years and uh, when Democrats were out of power in the House and Senate, and obviously in the presidency. And we thought there was a need for new ideas uh, to drive change. And at the heart of what we're focused on is actually not having a conversation with the country or just putting ideas on a shelf, but uh, having ideas that actually have real impact in people's lives. So it's like, we like to say, we're not about changing the conversation, but changing the country. Now, in this era, uh, we're spending a lot more time defending progressive principles and progressive accomplishments, not just during the Obama years, but some progressive accomplishments from the last several decades. And so uh, we do feel like we're battling every day, but ultimately our goal is to develop ideas that can change the country for when progressives come back to power and actually are able to use the levers of power to actually help people instead of hurt them, which is what we're seeing so much happening now. So, uh, you know, I think we've, in a way, gotten back to our roots, which is to fight conservatives um, uh, and to try and make change. But we're also doing what we've done before, which is to develop ideas that can move the country forward. Incredible. And tell us a little bit about how that's played out in something like healthcare, um, which has been, you know, I think personally for you, a big issue as well as sort of on behalf of CAP, um, kind of what what your role has been in that fight over the last few years. 
Yeah, so actually, healthcare is a fascinating story for us because uh, it really tracks through everything we've done over the last 15 years. So we developed an idea in 2005 that became the basis of the Affordable Care Act. We we talked about how to expand healthcare coverage for millions of people um, in a policy idea we did in March of 2005, and then we worked over several years with allies, SEIU. Um, different grassroots groups to propel those ideas into the presidential campaign and all of the major candidates that year took up our idea and it became the basis for what President Obama did as president, the Affordable Care Act. And then when he was in office, the Center for American Progress worked outside to develop support and really push uh, the legislative process forward. And obviously we've been defending it over the last couple of years, but played a central role. So CAP last year helped lead the fight to save the ACA. And we worked in particularly, I think, kind of innovative ways, which is not just putting ideas out there um, and, and showing how much uh, Trump care would mean people would lose coverage or costs would go up. But we really tried to work with grassroots organizations like Pantsuit Nation and others around the country because we recognize in this particular moment the most important thing to stop uh, Republicans. And the only thing that works is direct democracy. And it's engaging activists to call their members of Congress, to flood town halls. And I really think in my, you know, many legislative battles I've been through <laughs> on behalf of positive things and to fight and defend uh, defense of uh, other things, uh, this, this battle was won. We won because people throughout the country decided that they were going to do something to keep health care for other people. And uh, we helped provide facts to people and information and, and helped organize who was the right people, who were the right people to call. But there was a tremendous grassroots energy out there. And that it's, it's those activists who called and went to town halls and flooded the Capitol. Uh, those activists are why 23 million people have health care today that wouldn't have had it if Donald Trump and the Republican Congress wanted and got their way. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I think we've seen the arc of the, we've been proud to be part of this arc of passing the legislation and then ultimately defending the legislation. Right now, we're continually vi vigilant against efforts to repeal it or drive up premiums. Trump is definitely trying to sabotage it. And the, the one of the reasons why activism is so important now is healthcare will definitely be on the ballot this November. So if Republicans keep power, there is no way that they will keep the ACA. Mm -hmm. So that's why over the next several months, we're trying to make clear to people what Trump's efforts to sabotage healthcare mean for rising premiums and why it's really on him that the ACA costs are going up and how we need to... If, we need to elect Democrats and people who care about health care who will actually uh, strengthen the ACA and not undermine it. And I love that um, <clears throat> what you sort of referenced as what, what CAP brings is this sort of deep um, knowledge and familiarity with the issues, um, with how things work in Washington, with that grassroots effort. Um, and you've and you've um, invested in stories too, which I think is obviously from Pansy Nation's perspective, we're all always interested in that. But how um, storytelling has kind of played into the healthcare battle in particular, but um, around a lot of the the issues that we're seeing come up, and how much story um, kind of drives that that activism. 
we had uh, Elena Hung from mm-hmm. Little Lobbyists on the podcast uh, a few weeks ago, and um, you know something very near and dear to her as a as a parent and also as an activist is using her family story to really make sure that that she's amplifying the issues that matter. Um, and I know that CAP has, like you said, sort of been this. Um, <clears throat> I don't want to say institutional because I think it, it it's almost like like the best kind of institution in terms of bringing that resource of deep experience in Washington um, to kind of the fingertips of people that are just eager and and passionate about taking action. Well, so what was really interesting, I learned so many lessons from the last year and a half. Um, One of the most important lessons I learned is progressive activists are not the are, are are not like every other activist, right? So progressive activists want information. They want not only what the bill does and its consequences, but also what are our rebuttals. Uh, and you know, I'm proud of the role Cap played in providing information to people about the legislation. And I, I mean, I had people asking me, "Well, what do we say about the individual mandate? And what do we say about you know they're going to say this to us in the town hall? How do we respond?" And 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 that's 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 what democracy really is. It's really people engaging in the legislative process, figuring out what these bills do to affect our lives, and then to, to holding their members of Congress accountable and really trying to, you know, I mean, we had so many millions of people engage in that debate. And truthfully, most of them had health care and weren't going to lose it. And what was really motivating and inspiring was how many people whose health care was never going to be touched. We're doing things to help other people. And, you know, the Republicans had a strategy, which is, you know, they thought the vast majority of the public really wouldn't care that some other group was going to lose health care. That was the gamble that they placed. And thankfully, we showed them otherwise. The bill became really unpopular. It was like the most unpopular piece of legislation (laughs) we've seen in my lifetime in Congress. And the reason why that was is because people engaged in the process, understood, and then talked to their friends and neighbors about Mm -hmm. the consequences and took action. And you mentioned stories, and I think this is such an incredible um, part of what we have to do in these legislative battles, but also in political fights, which is... You know, some one of our healthcare staff just thought during uh, the few weeks after the election, they thought, you know, we really need to capture these stories. So uh, they helped create, and we supported a story bank around the Affordable Care Act. And eventually, we got to five thousand stories mm. in every congressional district, in every part of the country, from Alaska to Arkansas. And those stories are people who benefited from the Affordable Care Act and who are worried about losing their health care, and they have you know, stories about pre-existing conditions, stories about people who'd never had health care in their life and had the security of it. And I think this is, uh, we've now built up a story bank on other issues. And I think one of the reasons why it's so important is we have to do a better job of, of providing, of marrying facts about things with what its real impact on people are. You know, what motivates people to take action is to a sense that it's going, this action, they're stopping something of real consequence to people's lives. And I think one of the things we've learned in this crazy period of disruption and uh, Frank, frankly, like everyday insanity, <laughs> is that, you know, the way to break through to people is is to really get 
them to understand the consequences on real people's lives. And all these things that are happening, everything Trump is doing is, is, is hurting someone. And it's up to us to have those stories, but also really arm people as they go into the midterms, as they go talk, uh, knock on doors and canvas, as they talk to their neighbors to say, here's the real consequence. I mean, because I think one of the challenges is we have drama every day on Twitter and on cable news, and it becomes a story about Trump and who he's fighting instead of the damage he's doing to people every day. And it's up to, you know, CAP and other organizations, but every advocate who cares about what's happening in this country to think through, like, there's a there's a TV show on television, right, that is the Trump drama. But, you know, behind the scenes every day, whether it's our water or regulations of how businesses treat workers or you know, the tax plan, it's actually, he's really going after the most vulnerable amongst us. And the way we're going to stop that is by electing people, progressives who are going to fight him at the ballot box. Absolutely. You're totally speaking our language. (laughs) I I didn't even like have to look at Libby on that one. Um, Yes, we're in the same room for listeners who are used to us being um, in our respective states. Um, Just the the marrying of the individual impact and that piece that makes you move on behalf of someone else is so critical to what we do. And it's one of the reasons I think why a lot of the initiatives that come from CAP are things that we can share in the group and that will resonate with people um, because that is a really, um, it's palpable in the work that you do in the pal- in the work that we do. And so there's a nice mix of those two things. Um, and I wanted to actually just change the direction of the conversation a little bit because we want to know a little bit more about your background. And um, a lot of what we do on this podcast is try to kind of talk to people that are finding their way and stepping into um, activism in different ways. So your career spans you know, several administrations and um, campaigns. And there are probably have been countless times where you've been the only woman in the room. Oh yeah. Um, so tell us about <laughs> <laughs> tell us about some of the lessons you learned in you know what it takes to get to the table, what it means to have a seat at the table, and people who are um, following in your footsteps. What what should they know? Uh, this is such a critical discussion because I've I've definitely been at tables where I'm the only woman. Uh, I'm the only woman of color. Uh, I'm the only person of color, uh, and I've been at tables where. That's not the case. And I think we talk a lot as progressives about having people at the table. And I I cannot say how fundamentally true it is that the decisions that get made in public policy in Washington are almost fully determined by who is at the table. And I've been in administrations. I've, I've been in places where there's a lot of women at the table, and somehow we then end up talking about issues of importance to women, like child care. And these should be important to everybody. But historically, have been more important to women, child care or paid leave or um, family economic security issues. And then I've been at tables where there aren't that many women. And the agenda moves away from those issues. And so I think it is so vital. I'm What I'm so excited about this year particularly is how many women are running for office because it will make all the difference in the world in the agenda that is set in Washington. And 
my own experiences, I've had mentors that are men and I've had a lot of mentors that are women. And, and, and you know, there are men who can be feminists in public policy, but it just happens to shake out in my experience that more women at the table deliver more results for women in the legislative process and the executive branch everywhere. So the, I'm really excited about what we're seeing. But I've also seen, you know, there, this has been, I will say, I'm, I, I hate to date myself, but I've worked in Washington 20 years. And it's changed a lot. When I first got to Washington, I worked in the White House, my first office. I worked in, um, I was the only woman for several, like most of the time I was there. And, you know, it's just a very different experience and different different feel. And there's so many more um, opportunities, I think, today. And there's just a different culture. You know, there's, there's definitely an old boys network. And that's really hard to get through. None of my I'm, my families aren't donors or anything. I'm the child of immigrants. My my parents weren't involved in politics that much, you know. So I think we it's up to all of us to make the road wider as we go. It's inspiring to hear. And it's great to hear that it's, <laughs> changing and that um, they're they're sort of as women like you trailblazers that were often you know the first to have that seat um, that it does get easier sort of as more women join in and and I think that's inspiring but it also um, means that those of us who do find ourselves with access or with a position mm. where we can make a difference that part of that responsibility is sort of using that space to create more space and I, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about sort of if that kind of comes with the work that you're doing with CAP or, or yeah. if um, some of the, the ways that you advocate is with that in mind. Absolutely. I mean, I'll say for myself, I wouldn't be in this job if and, and do what I do at CAP if it wasn't for periods earlier in my life where I was able to take more responsibility at a time where most women can't. So what I mean by that is, you know, in my early 30s, I, I, you know, I was married, I had a baby, um, I was in these moments where I was thinking, you know, a lot of people are forced to kind of lean back. And uh, for my first child, I was working for Hillary Clinton, and then she asked me to be her legislative director. And I had a lot of doubts about being able to do that with a young child. And you know, she reassured me and, and gave me her word and it, and held to her word that I'd have flexible hours and I could leave at a reasonable time. And, and, and I was able to advance even with, you know, a young child. And then my, I had my second child and Hillary decided to run for president. Really wasn't on my time scale with two young children, <laughs> but nevertheless. You follow <laughs> her, where we, as we know. And, yeah. uh, and, and she, you know, and this was like an important moment. So she was running for, she decided to run for president and I had a four-year-old and an 18-month-old. Hmm. And I, and she asked me to be her issues director on the campaign, which is an important responsibility. And I really struggled because I was like, how am I going to be there as a mom for my really adorable 18-month-old and, <laughs> and to take on this really important responsibility, which is not about like my ambition, but helping someone become president, which is an important thing for the country. And I, you know, I talked with Hillary a lot. I talked with other people. And you know, she basically said, we're going to make this work. And even on a presidential campaign, I woke up with my kids. I, 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 you know, 
did his my son's diaper first thing in the morning. I would do it often with <laughs> conference calls in the background. And this is one time someone started swearing at the conference call. And I was like keeping the phone away from my son because I was like, I don't think he's going to pick up those that language. But still. And but, you know, I, I went home at 630. I put my kid. I was there for dinner. I put my kids to bed. And then it's, you know, when they went to sleep, I, I continued to work. So I didn't sleep as much. But the... The most important thing is I was able to move up in my career as I had kids because I had a boss who was willing to give me more responsibility at a time when people are really trying to pull you out or think you just can't do it or assume you can't do it. And I'm really grateful for that. But one of the things that I am really committed to is, you know, it shouldn't be that women have to win the boss lottery. It shouldn't be that you should be like, oh, I had this lucky boss to be able to have kids and advance. And in all the research we do, and CAP has a women's program, and we've really built out a lot of research and analytics about this. But what really happens is women have kids, and then they fall back in their careers. And the important thing for us and what we try to do here is, obviously, we try to be a good place for women to work. But most importantly, we're trying to advance policies so that women don't have to face these trade-offs. I mean, when I came up in the 90s, women just assumed the trade-off between a high career path and a happy family life. And men never had to make those assumptions. And I look back now, and those in, those assumptions were pretty ingrained to me, mm-hmm. even even for me. And, you know, I'm a feminist, and I've been working <laughs> on these issues for 20 years. So, you know, the most important thing for us is – not to just be a model on how we're working and employ people, et cetera, but really to change policy for other people. And so this generation of women don't have to assume there's a trade-off that no, you know, honestly, men don't never make that assumption. Mm -hmm. So um, that's how I try to live through the example, which is to do it for other women coming behind us across the country. Mm -hmm. I, um, I love that, that I think really ties into what we were talking about earlier in the conversation about just how many women are stepping up to run for office and and joining the elected official, um, you know, slate that we have across the country. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing, um, where that, where, where that sort of arc leads. Um, but that brings me to my next question, which is, you know, we also talked about how it's just the churn is very crazy. It feels like we're living in this kind of wild time. (laughs) You know, we're 500 plus days into this administration and it feels like we never really know what to expect. Um, So it feels like five years. I know. It's like, that's the problem with Trump is it's like what happened this morning feels like it was yesterday. What happened yesterday feels like last week. You miss one news cycle and you're like, what just, what did I miss? Um, (laughs) But I'm wondering like when you zoom out and you look at the landscape, um, are you optimistic? Are you feeling cautious? What is your, you know, so when you wake up in the morning, what is your um, kind of initial feeling about the direction that we're going, um, you know, knowing that there is constantly like a fight against this administration, but do you feel like we're tipping in the right direction? Yeah, I'm I'm incredibly optimistic. And I guess I'll say I'm optimistic because I studied a variety of countries after Trump got elected. So you know, our national security team actually investigated what it's like when a nationalist, populist, authoritarian takes over a democracy. We have examples of that in Hungary and elsewhere. And, you know, one of the big problems is the resistance to those to those autocrats um, 
really dissipates and goes away. People get de got depressed. And then the autocrat has a freer hand with the judiciary or the press. And, and the United States has a very different model, which is we saw the largest march in political history the day after this mm -hmm. person was inaugurated. That activism has continued into the second Women's March and the Gun Sense Marches and the activism we see every day uh, online and uh, most importantly in primaries and at the ballot booth, at, at, on the ballot. So to me, what I'm really incredibly optimistic about is, is that we've brought in new activists who are committed to saving the country. And that's what it takes to deal with this. You know, when you look across the world, the only thing that stops these autocrats is really direct democracy. Mm -hmm. And it sounds hokey, but it's really one person at a time deciding to take an action they've never taken before. So it's to go to a town hall, never done that before. Or you know, speak up in a community setting or run for office. I mean, it's all of these things. And when I go around the country and see women who never t did anything political and are engaging in their elections and organizing their neighbors, I mean, that is so inspiring. And my deepest hope and is that we use this terrible moment where we have a politician and a political leader basically trying to pit Americans against each other and drive wedges and undermine democracy itself. That become, And this terrible moment becomes an inflection point for the country where we build a strong majority to actually take power and improve people's lives. That is going to be the only antidote to this. And, you know, there are more people engaging in primaries or more people voting, but it's you know the we're facing significant threats there there's they passed this tax bill and they're going to have tons of money in their election and they have no problem cheating i mean the fact that the president of the united states is tweeting about voter suppression as a personal victory is a is what we're up against and the you know on one level the fights are as stark as they've ever been mm -hmm. but that you know, hopefully we'll pull people. At the end of the day, the only thing that will repudiate Trumpism is Americans in a strong majority repudiating it. Mm -hmm. And so that's why these elections are so important, what people do, how you talk to the uh, talk to your neighbors, your crazy cousins, and other, <laughs> other parts of the country to gauge them in these elections. Make sure young people are registered to vote, that we have diverse people voting is really critical. Thank you so much. Um, all of this is um, just inspiring and activating, and it really does just remind us of, of our individual power um, and our collective power as women, as progressives, and, and all of that. So um, thank you. Can you tell our listeners uh, where to find more about the work that uh, CAP is doing, CAP Action Fund, and also, uh, like, your, if you have Twitter or anything, let us know <laughs> where we can follow you. <laughs> I am active on Twitter. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Get those retweets. Yeah. Go back to the 2016 election and just, like, revisit Nira because it makes me happy my my general take is to take my energy and anger at what's happening in America and turn it into vengeance which I do on my Twitter feed <laughs> so I'm at uh, I'm uh, my Twitter feed is at Nira Tandon but most importantly uh 
there's lots of information at www.americanprogress.org, which is CAP's website, and American Progress AmericanProgressAction.org is the CAP Action website. And uh, but you'll see us tweeting and uh, uh, information about what we can do on any of these issues. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us today, Nira. We are really thrilled to have been able to talk to you. It was so fun. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. This week's Pantsuit Nation podcast is brought to you by Sunbasket. Sunbasket delivers delicious meal kits right to your door, making healthy cooking easy and convenient for any busy lifestyle. There are 18 healthy options to choose from every week, including paleo, gluten-free, lean and clean, Mediterranean, and vegan. And they make it easy and convenient to cook healthy and delicious meals at home, no matter how much experience you have being in the kitchen. And now you have more options than ever. Just go to the Sunbasket app and pick from 18 weekly recipes. You can easily cook dishes like seared albacore tuna steaks with green beans and soft cooked eggs. Sunbasket works with the best farms and suppliers to bring you fresh organic produce and responsibly raised meats and seafoods. And everything is pre-measured and easy to prep. So go to sunbasket.com slash pantsuit today to learn more and get $35 off of your first order. That's sunbasket.com slash pantsuit for $35 off. Sunbasket.com slash pantsuit. It was so exciting to get to talk to Nira, and we are so thrilled that she was able to join us. So thank you again, Nira, for coming on the podcast. Um, So now let's talk about our call to action. As most of you know, Justice Anthony Kennedy retired from the Supreme Court last week. And what that means is that Donald Trump has the opportunity to nominate another justice to the court. Um, And this has the possibility to truly shift the balance of the court in a conservative direction. So we need to do everything that we can to make sure that the Supreme Court nominee that he chooses is someone that will be as moderate as possible. And so what can we do about this? Well, the first is that we can get to 51 no votes. Um, To start, we need 49 votes from every single Democrat to have a fighting chance. And that means that we need Chuck Schumer, the minority leader, to get Democrats to all vote together. Um, There are three senators who voted for Justice Gorsuch. That is Senator Manchin of West Virginia, Senator Heitkamp of North Dakota, and Senator Donnelly of Indiana. And we need them to stand with us this time. If we lose any of them, then any justice will go through. Um, And we also need to get a couple of Republican senators. And the two most logical are Senator Collins in Maine and Senator Murkowski in Alaska. Um, This has huge implications for Roe v. Wade um, above a number of other things. And so having two women who have previously demonstrated that they are pro-choice advocates um, is really critical. Um, And so what we need to do here is uh, call, call, call. So if you're in New York, call Chuck Schumer. Make sure that he knows that you expect him to whip those Democratic votes. Um, No against the any nominee that will prove themselves to be um, hostile to Roe v. Wade. If you are in one of the states... um, Indiana, North Dakota, or West Virginia, where your senator voted for Justice Gorsuch, call your senators and let them know that this you're watching them and that this time they cannot vote to approve a Supreme Court justice who will take away a woman's right to choose and various other civil rights that might be rolled back. And then if you're from any other state, you have to call your senators, call your Democratic senators, tell them that you want them to vote no. Call your Republican senators and let them know the same thing. You want them to vote no. These things are important to you. And make sure when you call that you mention the upcoming elections in November, that you will hold them to what they do in this fight right now and that you will vote against them if they do not uphold what you have asked them to uphold. 
So there's plenty of information about this on indivisible.org. If you go to indivisible.org, you can actually go scroll slightly down to this week's actions and there's a button that says learn more here in hashtag save SCOTUS. And that will explain the outline of both getting to 51 votes and then they actually go into more detail about taking back the Senate in November. There you can find call scripts for a variety of different senators. So like I said, if you are um, someone whose senators are Manchin, Heitkamp, or Donnelly, there's specific call scripts for that, for Democratic senators, for Murkowski and Collins, and for Republic senators, and for Senator Schumer. So it's a really great resource for those specific call scripts. They tell you exactly what you need to say to get the message across. And they have an opportunity for you to find your senator's information right at the website by clicking on Call Your Senator Now. Um, So again, that's indivisible.org. Scroll down to hashtag Safe SCOTUS and click on Learn More. So now let's talk about the golden pantsuit. Uh, this week's golden pantsuit is actually honoring a handful of women who are all the people that run the justice system in one Georgia city. Yes, that's right. The entire justice system in South Fulton, Georgia, is run by black women. Um, so that includes Chief Justice Tiffany Carter Sellers, Interim Police Chief Sheila Rogers, Solicitor LaDawn LBJ Jones, Public Defender Vivica Famber Powell, Court Administrator Lakesia Cofield, Chief Court Clerk Ramona Howard, Court Clerk Tiffany Kinslow, and Court Clerk Carrie Stevens. So all of these women represent all of the roles in the justice system in this town. And um, it's a 90% black town. There's 95,000 residents. And so having them all be people of color and having them all be women is actually really excellent in reflecting the actual community that these women work in. Um, And it's having an impact. Uh, There's a story in CNN about how a man got a traffic ticket and he actually brought his daughter with him to court so that she could see these women who look like her running it. Um, And that's the kind of thing that uh, when we say representation matters, that's the kind of moment that we're talking about, that seeing all of these women who didn't plan to be part of an entirely black female uh, justice system, um, but became part of it, uh, seeing them as role models for young women, um, young people of color who are looking to um, pursue these kinds of roles, and and really seeing that this is the kind of thing that can happen and can be inspiring. Um, So congratulations to the women of South Fulton, Georgia and good luck to you in this year of administering justice in your town. All right, so that brings us to the end of the Pantsuit Nation podcast. Thank you so much to our guest, Neera Tandon. Thanks to our sponsor, Sunbasket, and of course to our team at Cadence 13. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review. Visit us at pantsuitnation.org. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at pantsuitnation. Check out our Medium page, medium.com slash pantsuitnation. We will be back next week. Libby will be joining me again. And remember, until then, this democracy is your democracy. So stay engaged. Stay engaged.